Well, good morning, Chapel family. What a joy to be together here this morning. I encourage you to take your Bibles out and turn to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter and chapter 3. We are in the, the midst of a, of a study going through this marvelous little letter. And uh, I think it will help you to have the text out in front of you as we do our study today. I hope that your hearts are filled with thanks, thankfulness today as we just sang, as we head into Thanksgiving week. Uh, I, I just love Thanksgiving. I love that we have a week that's not about, uh, about presents and decorations, uh, although we, we, I like food too, that's good. But actually a, a holiday that um, the real purpose is to Focus on the goodness of God to us and to be thankful. How we need to pause and do that. If I have a feeling that most of us are not thankful enough. Uh, so many things. Uh, somebody told me this morning, they said that, uh, uh, you know, they, they remembered once hearing someone say, um, uh, what if God blessed you tomorrow with only what you gave thanks for today? And I oh. So we'd, it would be a very bad day, wouldn't it, for most of us? Well, uh, let's give thanks to the Lord and ask His blessing as well as we come to the Word. Father, we're thankful for many things. I'm thankful this morning for the good time of worship, for the call to thanksgiving, the reminder of thanksgiving. May that move us this week and drive our thoughts. I'm thankful for children as we watch the, the hordes of kids uh, Go out the doors. What a blessing to have so many, uh, so many children. Father, may we see them rise up to be, uh, godly men and women. Father, we're thankful for those who work with our children downstairs in the nurseries and children's church. Uh, what a blessing those folks are for their investment in our children and their investment in us as well. And we might have uh, a little more freedom to concentrate upon your word uh, while at the same time the kids are being taught very well on their level. So, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for the abundant blessings. Uh, most of all, we thank you for your love for us, exhibited for us through Jesus Christ. And, Father, we thank you for your word, your inerrant, infallible Word, which we are able to come to now, to open, to listen to you, to hear from you, and to meet you here in the pages of your word. So we ask that you would teach us. We ask more than that, Lord, that you would change us through your word and our time with you here this morning. This we ask for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in chapter 3 this morning, but I want to just reflect back for a moment into chapter 2. Peter reminds us there of our mission in this life. What is our mission? What is our purpose here on planet earth? Peter reminds us there, chapter 2, verse 9, he says, it is that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. God's purpose for us, His mission for us here in this world is to declare the excellencies, the glories of God. To declare His glory in this world and to, as well, in the process of that, share the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. But how are we to do that if the government is not on our side? And how are we to do that if the media is not on our side? And how are we to do that if the culture is not on our side? And what if they're just not not just not on our side, but what if they are hostile toward us? 
What if they slander us? What if they falsely accuse us? What if they say that we are hateful and repressive and they vilify us as an enemy of the people? What if, what if? Well, welcome to the world of Peter's readers. As they first received this letter, those first century believers in what we call today Asia Minor, that was the situation that they faced. The Roman government was not on their side as Christians. The media, such as it was in those days, was not on their side. The culture was not on their side. They were slandered. They were falsely accused. Those early believers were called rebels and traitors of Rome because they called Jesus, whom they followed, they called Him a king. They were called atheists because they wouldn't bow down and worship the gods of Rome. They were called cannibals because it was rumored that when they gathered in those late nights to meet or those early mornings, that in their gatherings they ate someone's body and drank their blood. And they were accused of kidnapping children. Because you see, Christians would often go in those days into the, into the city dumps and look around to see if there were any children who had been abandoned there to die because they were not perfect or they were unwanted. And they would take those children home and adopt them into their homes and raise them. People would see these families with these kids that they say, she didn't give birth. These are kidnappers. They were accused of incest because they called one another brother and sister. And sometimes their gatherings were called love feasts. How do you witness in a world which so misunderstands you so mischaracterizes you and hates you and despises you and perhaps persecutes you. Well, the Apostle Peter, there in chapter 2, a couple of verses later, gives an answer to that question. And he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the unbelievers, honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We covered those passages a few weeks ago. And Peter has gone on since then, we've seen in recent weeks, to to explain further what that living honorably looks like. How do we overcome lies and slander and persecution to impact a world that is antagonistic and hostile with the gospel? It won't happen through lawyers and courts. It won't happen with slick advertisements and PR firms representing us. Peter reminds us it happens When we live consistently and faithfully, we live honorable lives. Today, Peter sums up this section of his letter about living honorably and about being good and effective witnesses by giving us six essential character qualities which we are to exhibit as godly people who are going to make an impact in a godless and hostile culture. Verse 8 of chapter 3 of 1 Peter. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble 
mind. Six character qualities of impactful Christians. We are all, as believers in Jesus Christ, all of us as Christians, we are to demonstrate these characteristics in our dealings with everyone. In our homes with our spouse. In our homes with our children. In our homes with our parents. We are to do it at church. We are to exhibit these characteristics at work with our co-workers, with our boss. We are to do it in our classrooms. We are to exhibit these characteristics at the gym or with our friends or with our neighbors. We are even to exhibit these characteristics with our enemies. Very quickly, let's just note them. We read the verse, but what are they? He says, first of all, we are to have unity of mind. I think a better translation is the one actually most English translations use, ESV, and that is, it's the word harmony. That's a literal definition or a literal translation. We are to get along, be easy to get along with. I think that's the best way I could summarize what it's trying to get across. To not be people who are self-willed, who are stubborn, who are impatient, who are critical, who are demanding, or whatever those other things are that make people bristle when they are around us and they want to avoid all the, you know, the the little porcupine barbs that come out from us. Rather, we are to be those people who are easy to get along with. Secondly, he said we are to have sympathy. That means we are to empathize, to be sympathetic, to identify with the needs and the feelings, with the hurts and with the joys of other people. We're to really care about what they are going through. As Romans 12:15 puts it, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. We are to weep with those who weep. We really are to feel what others feel, to care about them in that. He goes on, we are to have brotherly love. In the Greek, some of you know the word phileo, which means brotherly love. It's where they get the name Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. You know, in the church, the reality is we call one another brother and sister in the early church (laughs) Got a bad rap sometimes for that, for calling each other brother and sister. But we do that because we are related through Jesus Christ. Because we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, as 1 John chapter 1 says, we have the privilege, the right of becoming children of God. He adopts us into His family. And we become brothers and sisters to one another. We are brothers, brethren with Jesus Christ. And so we are to treat one another with brotherly love, but not just inside the church. The reality is this applies outside the church as well, because everyone is created in the image of God. And everyone is deeply loved by God. God loved the world so much. John 3.16 says that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. How much does God love the world so much that He sent Jesus Christ to die for their sin? If only they will trust in Him, they will be saved. So we are as well to love others, to exhibit brotherly love towards everyone, genuine concern, genuine care for people, for all people. Fourthly, says we are to have a tender heart. We are to be compassionate, is another way to translate that, or we are to be kind-hearted. More than just having sympathy and empathy for others, I think this takes it to, it's, it's looking to actively help others to meet needs. And then he says we are to have a humble mind. We are to be humble. Not to be people who are focused on ourselves, not to be people who are selfish, rather those who value others above ourselves. It's exactly what 
what uh, Philippians chapter 2 calls us to do. It says, have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It says that we are to regard others as more important than ourselves. Those are five character qualities. And by the way, we look at this and we go, these make a person like this makes you make someone stand out. And a person like this is somebody we really want to be around. That's his point. We need to be this. And these are also, of course, godly characteristics. But the sixth quality we find in the next verse, and it's really where Peter directs his biggest emphasis in our text this morning. Verse 6, he says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may in obtain a blessing. What he says there, if I summarize it, is we are to be blessers, not a cursor. By cursor, it doesn't mean that little thing on your computer screen that you move around to select things. But to be not to be someone who utters curses, not to be someone who reviles. And who knows what revile means anyway, but it means it's not something good. We get that picked out here. We're not to be those who who harass and curse and speak badly to others. Rather, it says, we are to be those who bless. So let's be blessors, not cursors. We probably recall that Jesus taught this very uh, this very command and this very truth to his his disciples. Peter was one of them. He taught it in the Sermon on the Mount. I like Luke's version here. This principle of non-retaliation. We don't give people the evil that they give us, but rather a blessing. Look at what Jesus says there in Luke chapter 6, verses 23 to 24. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, I think Peter directs his big emphasis here because this is not natural. Well, we could make a case that all of these are not natural. They are not, they don't come easy, but particularly this one. When the bad stuff starts coming at you, what's your natural instinct? We got a new puppy a week and a half ago. And, uh, yesterday my daughter dropped their dog by as they were leaving town to go visit family. And now we have two dogs in our kitchen, a little puppy and an old dog. What happens? Any of you ever been there? The puppy. <laughs> and by the way, our little puppy is bigger than their dog by a couple of inches already. And so you got this big, uncoordinated, playful, inner, full of energy dog. <laughs> and the other dog is like, and what does the other dog do? Which is exactly what you do and what I do when people revile us. <laughs> Whatever reviling is. <laughs> Our natural response is... <sighs> and he says, don't do that. Instead, give a blessing. How many times when someone at work or someone at school is cussing you out, do you turn around and say, God bless you. Here, have a donut. (laughs) Do you like a cup of coffee? But that's what he says to do. This is so unnatural and so difficult and so weird. Why would we want to do that? Well, he gives us answers. He gives us actually three powerful motivations why we should want to be those who bless rather than those who respond with reviling and cursing and evil. Notice, finish, let's go back to verse 9. 
Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Reason number one why we should do this, and because we're going to focus on this, this one characteristic here of being a blesser, not a curser. Take those others off the screen, make a little room here. Reason number one why we should be a blesser. Because he says here, we are called to blessing. We are called to blessing. What does he mean by that? First, we've learned already back in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we have, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have received already a wonderful inheritance. We have an eternal destiny of blessing that awaits us. To this we were called to be a blessing. We were called to receive a blessing. We were called to inherit an eternal blessing. It is our destiny, so let's live up to our destiny. What we've already received, it's an eternal destiny. It's one that will never end. It's one that is more magnanimous and more, more awesome than we can ever imagine. And so let's just let that blessing start spilling out. Let's just start living up to it, is the point. Live up to what we already received. But it's more than that. We are called not only to inherit a blessing, we are also called here to be blessings. Those who bless others. For one thing, it's a command there, but I think it's also here in the why we should do this. It is our calling. I wrestled all week with the whole question of, is this is the calling here looking forward to what's coming, or is the calling here looking to what we are to be doing now? And I came to the conclusion, well, it's both. We are called to be a blessing here today. I believe that God, when he, when he blesses us with stuff, it's not just so we can sit back and get fat and lazy. Though that's not a bad thing, apparently. <laughs> but that's not the only purpose. It's not just so that once a year we can sit around and say, oh, at our Thanksgiving table, well, I'm so thankful that God has blessed us with so much uh, now this one day a year when we're thankful, let's try to remember a few things. Let's try to come up and we scratch our head and come up with five or ten things. Rather, it is to be so on, on our mind all the wonderful blessings that we receive from God that it spills out in us blessing others through that because God has given these things not just for our enjoyment, which He has given them for our enjoyment, it says in Timothy, but He's also given them to us as a stewardship. Our health, our strength, our wealth, all of these things are stewardships so that we can invest them well and give them to others, share them with others for their good. I see that principle laid out back in illustrated with Abraham. Abraham, the, the father of faith. Back in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abraham, he said to him this, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And he goes on to say, and in all in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that's specific things that were given to Abraham and specific things there. But the principle, I think, is that God blesses us not just for the purpose of our own enjoyment and our own, you know, whatever, but He blesses us so that we can bless others. God has called us to blessing, to inherit an eternal blessing and to be a blessing. And there's another thing here. In the next verses, Peter quotes uh, from Psalm 34 in verses 10 through 13. And he quotes from Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16, to make this next point about blessing. Let me just read what Peter writes. For whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. What he says, I think, is this. We are called to experience blessings now. 
And he makes that point by going back to Psalm 34. And Psalm 34 raises a question. He starts off with, For whoever desires to love life and to see good days. Now I want to ask a question. How many of you want to love life? Second question. How many of you want to see good days? Yes! We want to love life! None of us wants to go, I love to be miserable. I hope today is another miserable day because I love misery. No, we're not there. We love, we, we want to enjoy life and we want to see good days. None of us are sitting here, I hope tomorrow that I lose all my stuff and I hope tomorrow that I have nothing to eat and I hope tomorrow I get sick and I hope tomorrow I break my leg and I hope tomorrow... No, we want good days. Right? So, he says, whoever wants that, what does he say to do? Hmm. Keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Then turn away from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. See, what he's saying is that we will be blessed by God now if we do what is right. And in Peter's context here, if we... Bless others who mistreat us or insult us. And he speaks of blessings now. Here we have right there the prosperity gospel. I've been converted to the prosperity gospel. I'm preaching it here this morning. People are grabbing stones. As I've said, run from that. Well, the prosperity here is not new cars, big houses, and yachts, and money. What he says here is, those who do good, what happens? Do you desire these things, happiness and good days? Well, he says, if you do, then do these things. If you desire to love life, if you desire, in other words, to be happy, he's calling us to experience blessings now, happiness now. And how do we get that? He says, by Doing these things. Do what is right. Seek peace and pursue it. You know, Jesus said this back in the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. He begins, chapter 5, Matthew. He, a little section we often call the, what? Beatitudes. What does it start off with? Blessed are those. And we, the blessed there can mean happy. Happy are those, he goes on, happy are the humble. Happy are those who mourn over their sin. Happy are the meek who don't fight back. Happy are the merciful. Happy are the pure in heart. Happy are those who make peace rather than stir up strife. What Jesus isn't saying is that you do all those things and nothing in life ever goes wrong. That everything in life is good and easy. And that's not what Peter is saying. Peter isn't saying that happy people never have problems. Peter isn't saying that happy people never have difficulties, that happy people never suffer. What he is saying is that people who respond to suffering and people who respond to difficulties and people who respond to to problems in godly ways end up being happy people. And that's what Psalm 34 is saying. Which is why Peter goes back and quotes that psalm for us here in this text. And he goes on to say, do you want to see good days? Generally, he's saying when we do what is right, it brings about good things. Generally, when we behave rightly, when we do what is right, it brings good benefits. It makes for good days in living. The reality is sin is hurtful. Sin is hurtful to us and sin is hurtful to others. A large percentage of the problems that people experience and the difficulties and the sufferings that people experience in life are there because of their sin. I'm not saying that all all suffering is a result of sin. That's not true. But I'm saying that a large percentage of the, of the sufferings and the problems we have in life are due to the fact that we did what is wrong. You see, greed, envy, coveting, 
Pride, arrogance, theft, intoxication, laziness, lying, gossip, cheating, rebellion, immorality. Those are all sins and every one of those produce problems, often very big problems in life. And many of you can say amen because you've seen those in your own life. And the fact is, if we avoid those sins, we avoid the problems and the sufferings and the difficulties that come along with those sins. And if on the other side we do what is right, if on the other side we are honest, we are, we are hardworking, we are, we, we do what is right in Scripture, it brings about good things. And so generally what the Psalm is saying and what Peter is saying, when we live right, generally good things happen. And by the way, those people, even when the suffering comes, it's, these tend to be the happy people and have good days because of right living. And that's what the point is. We are called to blessing. We are called to inheriting eternal blessing. We are called to be blessings to others. We are also called to experience blessings now. And so the question, do you desire to have a good and enjoyable life? Then you better, as the text is saying here, you better watch your mouth. Be careful, keep your tongue from evil. He says you better do good, not evil. Watch your behavior. And he says that you ought to be a peacemaker. Seek peace, pursue it, desire it, work to resolve problems rather than being the person who stirs up problems. Hmm. There we go. So that's the first motivator why you and I ought to be blessers, not cursers, because we are called to blessings. The second big motivator, not to retaliate and instead to be a blesser, we find in verses 12 to 13. He continues actually quoting from Psalm 34. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? The second big motivator not to retaliate is God is on the side of of the righteous. Good news here for God's people. God is on our side. He hears and answers our prayers. That's what he says right there. He hears and answers our prayers. Now he doesn't always answer our prayers the way we want or the way the way that we think he should, but that's good. It's a good thing that God doesn't always give us everything we ask for. Kind of like kids who ask for silly stuff, and parents, wise parents don't always give their kids what they ask for. God is a good parent. But He always hears and He always does what is best for us. And He says, who is there to harm us? Who is there to harm us, He asks. And I think, you know, I could come up with a good list. <laughs> give me just a second. I'll give you some names, God. Who is there to harm me? <laughs> and, and the point is, though, that there may be people out there who want to harm you, but the, the, it's not a, the, the question here is a rhetorical one. The answer is no one. There's no one who can harm you. You see, they may slander you, they may abuse you, they may assault you, they may take our goods, they may destroy our stuff. But as Romans 8.31 says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? There is no one and nothing that can thwart God's good, His good purposes and His good plans for you. You're God's child. He's in control. No one, no thing can stop His purposes for you in this life or in our eternal future. That's what gave the confidence, the boldness to Martin Luther back in the 1500s His life was in danger. He was in danger of being arrested, of executed because of his faith in Christ. But the reality that if God is for us, who can be against us? It caused him to pen these words in that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress. He said, the body they may kill, but God's truth abides still. His kingdom is forever. They may kill the body, but they can't stop what God has designed. They can't stop what God desires. They can't stop God's good purpose for you or me, period. Doing right generally, doing good things generally brings about good things. 
acting rightly, uh, honorably, living honorably in a hostile world will generally bring about good things to us. But the reality is it doesn't eliminate suffering in our life. And matter of fact, doing right will sometimes be the very reason we will suffer. So while all the things that we have said are true, the reality is suffering may very well come into our life. Matter of fact, it's inherent in this, from the beginning of this, of this section where he tells us that we, uh, where he says, don't repay evil for evil, don't, don't give back reviling for reviling. Well, we can't give something back if we didn't receive it in the first place. The very fact that we're having this discussion means we've already received reviling and evil from other people. We've already experienced suffering. We may have already experienced persecution. And while all of these other things are true, that we are called to blessing and that God is on the side of the righteous, those are true. It doesn't mean that we will never experience suffering or persecution. But there's a third motivator here. Why are we, when, we, when those things do happen, why we are to be blessers and not cursers. And that is because persecution brings blessing. Suffering brings blessing. See, Peter says here in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, it won't be the norm, but it will happen. And when it does happen, He says, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Suffering and persecution has blessings that come along with it. And for that reason, we shouldn't let it let it destroy us and wipe us out. In the midst of it, we should still seek to do what God has called us to do. Live honorably. And in this case, be a blesser. One who blesses, not one who curses. Three blessings here of persecution that I find in our text this morning. The first here right in verse 14 where he says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. I put it this way. The first blessing of persecution that's here is that suffering produces boldness. Now, I really cannot speak authoritatively in this matter. Number one, because I'm a wimp. And number two, because I haven't suffered greatly. But I know people who have. And I've spoken to those who have. And what I have learned from them and through them is that suffering produces boldness. A few years ago, I was in the southern Philippines with our missionary partners there and with other frontline workers there working in some of the harshest conditions on planet Earth, living in the harshest conditions on planet Earth. And in danger where there is very real persecution for those who name the name of Jesus Christ. Every one of our partners there and my, our friends there, I'll say our friends, even if many of you haven't met them. Every one of them knows people who have been killed because they are followers of Jesus Christ. And at one of the conferences a number of years ago when I was there, I remember when one of them stood up and they said, persecution will never stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. But fear of persecution can. They made a very real distinction there. What they said is that God is faithful and God will not allow persecution to stop the advance of the gospel. Rather, he works through persecution and and despite persecution to bring people to him. In fact, it's been said that persecution is the fertile soil in which the gospel of Jesus Christ flourishes. If you look around the world at where the church is growing the fastest, it is in the places where persecution is the harshest. And if you look in this world at where the Christian witness is the weakest, it tends to be where Christians have it the easiest, which, you know, the average Christian in America has never shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with one person. And that's our mission. 
Where are the, where are the witnesses of Jesus Christ the boldest? In the places where it is the most dangerous. And I realized that my friends were right. Persecution will never stop the gospel of Jesus Christ, but fear of persecution will. And what my friends there, our friends there told us is that the more persecution that they have endured, the more they realize God is faithful in the persecution and God sustains us and God works through it and we're not afraid of it anymore. The more that we endure, the more bold we come. And so Peter says here, have no fear of them. Have no fear of the persecutions. Have no fear of the sufferings. Nor be troubled about them. What's the great fear we face? Why don't we share the gospel? I'm afraid. What are we afraid of? I'll be rejected. I'll be made fun of. I'll be whatever. Hmm. Fear can rule us. It can cripple us. But our brothers and sisters have said living among suffering and persecution, they say it just makes them stronger, bolder. There's another benefit of persecution here uh, and of suffering, and that is verse 15. It says, but in your hearts honor Christ as the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, and yet do it with gentleness and respect. Suffering provides opportunity for witness. Does anybody know the Boy Scout motto? Any of you Boy Scouts in here? Boy Scout motto. Be prepared. Anybody know the motto of the United States Coast Guard? Semper Paratus. Semper Paratus. It's on their seal. You can't read it from back there. What does that mean? It's Latin. It means always ready. Peter calls for us here to be Boy Scouts. He calls for us here to be Coast Guard. Always prepared. Always ready to share our faith. Always ready, he says, to make a defense to anyone who asks for you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Always be ready to answer the question, why What's going on with you? What's different about you? What do you believe? I wonder this question. Do you know how to share the gospel? If right now you had to tell somebody how they could get to heaven, how they could know for sure their sins are forgiven, and they're going to heaven from the Bible, could you do that? If not, why not? He's calling us here to do some work, to be ready when the opportunity comes. We've had classes in that before. We'll do it again. Feel free to come talk to me. I'll make sure you're trained. How do you share the gospel? He's calling us to be ready when opportunity comes. Next thing he says is to anyone who asks of you. And there it is. You know what? I may never have shared my faith with anybody before, but you know what? Nobody's ever come up and asked. (laughs) So I'm off the hook. There really hasn't been a problem here. The emphasis here isn't wait till somebody asks you. It's that you can't tell somebody about Jesus until they ask. That's not it. No, the point here isn't that. The point is, why would somebody ask you about what you believe? Why would somebody ask you, what is the hope that you have? That's the question. See... In context here, what what is happening is, he says that people are on the outside here watching you because they know that you claim to be a Christian. And the people on the outside are watching you. And for the most part, unfortunately, what the world out there sees is disappointing. What gets their attention is in the context here when we're talking about suffering. And when when people look at you and you are suffering, there is sickness in your home or you are being persecuted. There are people who are discriminated against you or slandering you or making fun of you or even beating you or whatever because you are a believer in Jesus Christ. They are mistreating you and you say, 
Hey, would you like a donut? Hey, God bless you. And people go, that's weird. And they keep watching to see, is that just some little fluke thing where the guy just, he totally lost his mind. (laughs) And they begin to see that, no, this is your character. Instead of cursing, you bless. And you are all those other things in the list. (laughs) You are empathetic, and you are loving, and you are humble. And so one day they come and they say, what is it that makes you so different? Or how is it that you have hope when you have cancer and you've lost your job and your child is sick? And how is it that you have hope? Anybody else would have given up. Anybody else would be in despair. And there is joy in your heart, on your face. I don't get it. You see, that gets attention. Suffering produces opportunity for witness. A right re- when, it, when we respond rightly to it. And it opens the door for a powerful testimony. That's a reason not to run from suffering and it's a reason to respond well to it. God may be setting you in the position where you will be in a position to give a powerful testimony to somebody who otherwise wouldn't listen. Lastly, Peter goes on to say, having a good conscience, we're in verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. His point is that when you, when you respond in a godly manner to persecution, you will have a good conscience before God and before man. And you can be assured that though things look bad now and while people don't understand now, you are mischaracterized now and while you're suffering now, there is a day coming when you will be vindicated. When people will see what God already knows because He knows your heart. He knows knows exactly what you do. And you will be vindicated by God and before man. And he says, your persecutors will be ashamed. The last five verses of our passage, Peter gives an illustration of that. Of of that fact about vindication. The main idea is pretty clear, but the details, quite frankly, are, are very fuzzy. So much so, one pastor wrote this. He said, in seminary, we were taught in homiletics, in preaching class, that if an illustration you are planning to use needs explanation, pick a different illustration. And the pastor went on to say, I wish Peter had heard and followed that advice. (laughs) These next verses, the next five verses, 18 to 22, are difficult. There are three main views seeking to explain exactly what they mean, the details of them, dozens of variants of each of those three main views, and all trying to explain how these details fit and work together and what they mean. And in the end, I simply echo the words of, again, go back to Martin Luther in the 1500s who wrote this. He said, this is a strange text. And more, a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, for I do not with certainty know what St. Peter means. If Martin Luther said, I don't get it, don't expect your feeble pastor here to be able to say, yeah, I can tell you exactly what it means. What we're going to do real quickly, I'm going to read the verses just so we can say we did. You can see what's there. I'm going to hit the main points and give you, I think, Peter's, Peter's big, big idea. 
And I'll leave all the details to you to wrestle with on your own because, quite frankly, they're unanswerable. When we get to heaven, we'll get that one. Here it is. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, where God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Amen. Very quickly. Jesus suffered unjustly for our sins, bearing witness to a hostile world. He was vindicated through his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God. Noah also was a man who bore witness to a hostile world, and he was vindicated by God who delivered him and his family through the flood. We, who have come to God by salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, should therefore not fear bearing witness through baptism, which, by the way, publicly marks us as followers of Jesus, to a hostile world, even if it means persecution. Big point is simply this, even if you don't agree on the details. Big point is this, we are called to bear witness in a hostile world, but be faithful to God because we can trust Him to vindicate us. That's the big idea. And I'll let you work out all the details. What an amazing passage this whole thing is. Calling us to godly characteristics in an ungodly world, and especially this really hard one of not dishing back evil for evil, but rather being a blesser instead of a curser. We have a mission. Big thing here. We have a mission. And there are great blessings awaiting if we will embrace it and seek to live it out this week. By God's grace, let's go do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Challenging as it is, it's stuff we need to hear and stuff we need to be reminded of because you've put us here to be witnesses and to be be on mission in reaching our world for Christ. But the reality is most of us aren't engaged And very often, people wouldn't listen to us if we shared the gospel because, frankly, we're not living a life that backs it up. And this passage is calling us to live as you've called us to do so we have a life that, in fact, will even cause others at times to go, what is different with you? Because I think I need that. God, may we be blessers, not cursers. May we follow you and embrace your mission for your glory as well as for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.